Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, at is JB3. And this week on the pod, we are talking all about trauma. And this episode actually came out of a conversation I was having with a friend of mine who we were talking about just my my need and desire to feel busy or to, to be busy or at least doing something. Like I, I get the urge to create and it's almost like I, I get fidgety. And he made a comment that that's likely a trauma response. And I, I didn't quite understand where that came from. Um, and in doing some digging, it's like, oh, well, I grew up in a pretty, uh, I don't say busy environment, but we were very structured. There was and things that had the schedule. We knew what time was dinner. We knew what time was bath. We knew what time was bedtime. And like the, everything became very cyclical. But to me that, that didn't constitute this idea of a trauma response, but I, I wanted to know more, right? And so reached out to my friends over at the Cummings Graduate Institute and Dr. Fanika Kiara Young um, was someone who quickly elevated to the top of the list of folks that I needed to talk to. Now, when we think about reactions to trauma, it's, it varies greatly, and as it should. Individuals have unique experiences, therefore their responses to those things may be unique as well. We could think of something like a natural disaster, we could think about Katrina, we could think about uh, flooding. We could think about anything that disrupts one's natural environment. But we could also talk about being a witness to a crime or an act of violence or being physically assaulted. Like all of these things can produce a trauma response because they are traumatic experiences. As I've matured and navigated my way through therapy I'm starting to really pick up on the impacts of trauma as an adult and some of the behaviors that I display or things that I, I reject as a parent because I don't want to impose traumatic experiences on my child or children rather. And it's interesting because so much of the podcast work that I do, I see now connections between my lived experience and the content that we're talking about for the day. We're going to go ahead and dive into today's episode. I want to introduce you all to Dr. Fanike Kiara Young. Dr. Kiara Young. Thank you, James. I'm so happy to be here. So I am a licensed therapist and a childhood and financial trauma specialist. And I'll explain a little more about that later. I am a doctor of behavioral health and a master Reiki practitioner. And so I typically work with my clients from a holistic perspective and focus on mind, body, spirit healing, because my belief is that the body is interdependent on one another. And so what that means is that you must treat all of the parts of you to ensure that you are healing holistically and to make sure that if something is happening, let's just say mentally, if you're having anxiety or something of that sort, it can also have an impact on you physically. And so it's super important that 
we view the body as a holistic entity when you are discussing healing. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, where do you call home? You mentioned that you're a DBH. Um, might even be yeah. good to explain what that is for folks who aren't familiar and maybe what you're doing currently. Sure. So I currently live right outside of Atlanta. I am in the suburbs of Atlanta. It's about 20 minutes out. Originally from Brooklyn, New York and moved here and went to college here and just made it home. So I'm very happy <laughs> to be here. However, also starting to just get that urge to move maybe. <laughs> so my husband and I are figuring out what's going to be the next step for us. I am, like I said, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I went to Georgia State University and received my bachelor's and master's degrees and then graduated from Arizona State University with my doctorate in behavioral health and also known as the DBH. So the DBH is still considered a new degree or in a new, a new profession. Uh, and so doctors of behavioral health focus on integrated care, specifically by applying the Biodyne model. The Biodyne model was created by the founder, Nicholas Cummings. I am currently the director of Cummings Graduate Institute. And the school was co-founded with Dr. Nicholas Cummings. And it was his original concept after feeling like the Doctor of Behavioral Health curriculum was not necessarily being offered in the manner in which he wanted it to be offered and the way in which he wanted the students to be trained. And so he went ahead and started his own school. So I'm actually, like I said, currently the director and the students come in typically with some type of licensure and some type of background in mental health. And what we do is we work with them to teach them how to enhance what it is that they already know so that they can really grasp the concept of integrated care and specifically working with primary care practitioners. And so what that means is that a mental health provider is trained specifically to work alongside a primary care practitioner, practitioner or a physical health provider. And so that helps the patients, like I said, to receive that integrated holistic type of treatment in that setting. I definitely got a lot of questions about the integrated care model, um, <laughs> okay. just from my, my own experience, but we'll, we'll come to that later. Okay. I invited you to talk about trauma. So let's, let's talk about, so, <laughs> <Let's do it. laughs> what exactly is it? Cause I, I feel like I hear it mm, a lot mm -hmm. in the discourse. People say, Oh, you know, that's a reflection of trauma. And so what exactly is it? What are some common types? Break it down for us. So trauma is, a feeling, a reaction, a response to something that is just very disturbing, something that is distressing, something that is overwhelming to someone. And so typically it is something that, you know, causes um, feelings of anxiety or um, that person may experience a range of emotions and feelings at, in, the, in a short period of time due to the event. 
And so trauma ranges. And, and typically when people hear trauma, they immediately think that it has to be something that is like, you know, so extreme. So it has to be something that deals with abuse or it has to be something that deals with losing someone or someone dying away, dying or going through a divorce or, you know, going through a very upsetting life event or witnessing a very upsetting life event, but that's not true. And so trauma can be, and, and let me be clear, trauma ranges for different, and it's different for everyone. And so for example, I may and I may have a minor car accident where someone I'm driving and someone hits the bumper of my vehicle and I may, that may happen. And I may just go on with my life and never think about it again. However, someone else may have the same experience, but in turn now, when they're driving, they're constantly looking behind them. They're constantly checking their mirrors to make sure no one's speeding up um, and may possibly hit them they are constantly in fear of that accident happened again happening again and so same incident but different responses to the incident and so trauma is not a lot of times people try to compare traumas and they try to say okay well you know that my trauma was worse than hers or her trauma was worse than mine or you know a lot of people never discuss their trauma open up because they minimize it because they're so busy comparing their traumas to others. And so that is, that's a no-no, that's, that's a huge mistake because every, all of us perceive things very differently and it's not just you know, on one scale of measurement. And so you can't compare. So there are multiple types of trauma. Uh, the three common ones are acute, chronic, and complex. And so acute trauma typically uh, is a single episode or a single experience or a single incident that happens. And so that would be considered acute trauma. Chronic trauma is something that is repeated and um, prolonged. And so it happens over and over and over again. And so in a situation like that, there it may be, let's say, domestic violence where a person um, is encounters domestic violence repeatedly over several weeks, over several years, you know, over several months. So that would be considered chronic trauma. But then you also have complex trauma. And so the difference between complex trauma and chronic trauma is that it would be for complex trauma, it would be multiple events, but they may be different events. And so a person may, you know, lose someone that they love. Um, then that person may go through a divorce, then that person may be involved in a car accident, then they may lose their job. And so it's multiple events that are happening to that person. Um, and typically, you know, like back to back or within like um, a certain time frame. And so that person really never gets the opportunity to truly heal because there's always something that's happening. And so you describe trauma you know, at least part of the impact of being like this anxiety around a scenario or a situation. Are there other common impacts as a result of trauma? So again, it's, it ranges so much. And so a person can have a mental response. They can have a behavioral response. So in, in going through or enduring 
a traumatic event or some type of trauma can trigger that person's behaviors to change. They may not continue to do the things that they were doing before. Um, they may change, you know, their whole pattern because of that trauma or those traumatic events that occurred. Um, the trauma may trigger some physical changes. And so that person may experience some pains. Um, we call that somatization. And so that may look like the person is now having migraines repeatedly, or they're having, you know, it could be because of anxiety. They may feel like, um, they're having panic attacks or it can, it can show up in all of those, you know, different realms. And so that's why this work is so important to me because of my own history with complex trauma and realizing that it's not just a mental health thing. And so the trauma may, you know, start off, or at least we may, we may align the trauma with, you know, mental health symptoms. However, if you do not deal with that trauma or those, the side effects of that trauma, they can then start showing up across your whole life. And so they can show up in different places that you didn't even think it was affecting. One of the things, yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say, one of the things that that this is like really resonating with me is the notion of why the doctor of behavioral health is so important, right? Because you're able to bridge the physical and the behavioral in ways that one group may not be able to do, right? Like it, it really makes clear the relationship between body and mind and, and how those things go hand in hand. Definitely. So, and, and the beauty of it is I remember the first time I had the opportunity to work in a clinic alongside a primary care doctor and the primary care doctor happened to be a naturopath. And so she had a chiropractor that came in. She had a nurse practitioner that came in. She had someone that came in and, you know, they did massages. Um, and so she was very open to different practitioners, different modalities, you know, coming in because her goal was to be as effective as she could be when treating her, treating her patients. And so that's the thing that I love about it. I honestly, I, I never planned to get my doctorate. I am a licensed clinical social worker. I can work, you know, as far as on the social work scale, you know, I'm, I'm very high on the, on the chart <laughs> with the, as an LCSW. And so I was clinical, I was doing therapy and I was like, I don't really need a doctorate. And then I do my research one day and I think it like popped up in, on somewhere, you know, I'm reading and I started reading about the doctor of behavioral health and then researching. And I was like, wow, like this is it, <laughs> this is it. And so having the opportunity to now be the director at Cummings Graduate Institute, for over, you know, the DBH program has been such a blessing because I have the opportunity to see, you know, when students come into the program, what, what, what it looks like for them, you know, their, their perspectives, their views, their thoughts. And then I get to see how they shift over time, you know, so as they're introduced to the different, you know, clinical pathways and the different options for treating patients and, um, as they're introduced to the literature and they're introduced to, you know, the experiences of their instructors, 
they're introduced to different topics and they get to also view, you know, integrated care from a different perspective a lot of times because a lot of a lot of us that are mental health practitioners or with a mental health background, we're usually used to working, you know, independently. And so when we're in school, that's kind of, you know, the training, that's, that's how we're shaped to operate um, in that area. And so when the discussion comes up and you receive, you know, actionable steps on how to then take what it is that you learned, you know, and then transform it, you know, into something that allows you to strengthen another practitioner that you probably never even imagined that you would be working with. You know, it's, it's incredible. So there's a lot of education that has to happen, you know, from both sides, there's education that has to happen for the physical health practitioner. There's, there's education that has to happen for the mental health practitioner. And so even within the program, we, we have medical literacy courses, because it's important that when you're in that environment, that you can speak the language of the providers and also that you understand what it is that they're saying, you know, so that you can communicate effectively um, about that patient. And I realize I'm taking us all off the outline. I'm going to do better. It's okay. <laughs> so it's about the relationship between racism, gender, and trauma, because we, we live in an intersectional world, right? Like, what, how do all these pieces show up together? Hmm. That is a great question, James. So <laughs> I, I believe that the acts that some take, and when I say acts, I am referring to, you know, actions, words, policies, things that um, things that occur that directly impact a person of color you know, especially when we're discussing racism. So those things dictate whether a person experiences trauma due to their race. And what I mean by that is there are certain laws and certain expectations and norms that have just become a part of society that I believe are welcomed and encouraged where I've seen some, some shifts, you know, because of, you know, Black Lives Matter and because of social media, things have been, you know, publicized more. And so it's not necessarily, you know, things that's, you know, occurring and it is swept under the rug. Um, I am here in Georgia where Ahmaud Arbery was murdered and Initially, <laughs> initially, um, the ones that attacked him and, and killed him were not, you know, set to face charges. And so because of social media, because of, you know, the, the, the media and the people, because of the exposure, because now people can see, you know, all of this, it set some things in place for his murderers to face trial and, you know, be convicted. Um, but my, my, where I'm going with this is when you look at racism, when you look at sexism, when you look at, you know, 
gender and trauma, so many people are judged and treated based on how they look. So many people are judged and treated based on, you know, things that they can't necessarily change, things that they were born with, things that, you know, hey, this is, this is how I am. And so, but then because they're mistreated, it can set a lot of trauma in place for that person uh, because they're mistreated because of that. But the, the really crazy part is they can't change it. And so it's kind of like, well, what do you do with that? You know, as a Black female, I find that it's, it can be very difficult to navigate uh, especially, like I said, I live in Atlanta, I live in the South, and it can be difficult to navigate as a Black person and as a woman. Um, you know, a, Black people in the South have never really been viewed as equal, you know, um, especially, and, and of, of course, I know that that happens around the world. It's not just here in the United States, but, you know, people of darker skin, um, they're not necessarily treated equally around the world. Um, and so that, so that's, that's, that's a whole nother topic, but, you know, and then it's like, even if, you know, I get past that barrier or that obstacle, then because I'm a woman, you know, I may be viewed as weaker or I may be viewed, you know, in a certain light. And so it's just, I think the responses, the, the policies those are, those are things that are traumatic. Every single time a Black person is killed by a police officer and that police officer is acquitted, that's trauma. You know, like that, that's, a tra that's a trigger for, I believe, all Black people. It's regardless of how much money you make, regardless of where you live, regardless of, you know, regardless of, of your class, regardless of where you live, it's a trigger. And it's, it's something that, you know, it's difficult like I said, to really get over. And so that trauma kind of sits there, you know, like we have to keep in mind that, especially, you know, like I said, I'm from Brooklyn, New York. And in the eighties, Brooklyn, New York, it was, it was a huge crack epidemic. And the people in my community, they were black and brown. And they were the ones that were mostly impacted by the crack epidemic. And so there's no way for me to not, you know, believe that that was racially motivated. And of course, there was so much trauma occurring. Deaths, the first time I saw someone killed, I was four years old. And a man walked up to another man and just shot him in the head. And I was four. And I believe that, again, that had something to do with the crack epidemic and you know, what was going on during that time, but we can always, you know, trace it back to race and the long-term impact that the side effects of the policies and the treatments and the, the lack of action to protect certain people because of their race and gender is traumatic within itself. There's so many things to, to unpack there, right? Because one, I'm grateful for the work of, of Kimberly Crenshaw because she makes it 
clear that the intersectionality is part of the reason why oppression is worse, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because being Black is like one part and being a woman is one part. But when you are a Black woman, those two parts come together. And when I've when I've done presentations, I, I like to describe these things as like where all the roads meet, right? Like it's a crossroads. And mm -hmm. the the interesting thing is we tend to think of it before the action, right? Like we think of oppression, whatever that may be in that particular moment, but we don't often talk about the result or the resulting trauma, right? Like mm -hmm. what, what lingers with the people. And I think a, a really good example, or at least what's gonna be a case study for years to come is the pandemic, right? Like we think about COVID-19 and how people have had to adjust. We think about the social isolation, right. we think about the economic and financial impacts, the, the, the mental health pieces that have yet to be studied. And even the, the fiscal pieces, like people who actually had COVID and now are part of that, that long COVID group, right? Like they will never be the same. And so when we start talking about disparities and inequities, it's easy to see like part of it, but mm -hmm. we'll never have a good, good sense of like all the ways that we've been impacted and the, they, the way that things stay with us over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And you bought up, um, brought up Kimberly Crenshaw. And I think one of the, you know, we have to, you know, of course, mention critical race theory and how, you know, it discusses how it's, all of it is embedded, you know, in, in, the, in the foundation. And so sometimes, you know, the traumatic pieces, no matter what you do, no matter what efforts you make, no matter, you know, how you try to escape it, you know, can you, can you, can you really escape, you know, what's, what's embedded, what's in the foundation, what the country was built on, what it looks like, you know, and so it, it's a, it's a realization that so many don't want to face and they don't want to accept and it really, really, you know, just harps on the extension of how others impact others, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think sometimes we miss that part. Like if I do this, or if I make this decision, or if I create this law, or if I pass this bill, you know, do you really understand the impact, the long-term impact that that will have on the next person. Because your laws and bills, they don't just impact the generation in which you are creating them in, they have a long-term effect. They, they impact generations upon generations upon generations. And so it, it really, really, you know, brings that, I think, to surface. And that's why a lot of people don't want to discuss it. So as, as individuals and institutions start to shift, right, and you hear this idea of being trauma-informed, what does that mean exactly, and how does one show up when they are trauma-informed? So trauma, being a trauma-informed practitioner means that you approach everyone from the assumption that they have experienced 
some form of trauma. And so it allows you to practice a level of empathy and sympathy for someone without necessarily knowing their whole history or them having to, you know, disclose to you what they have actually been through. Um, and so what we have found is that if a person or if an organization or if an institution implements certain policies to encourage their providers and to encourage the environment to be one that is trauma-informed, it helps to prevent their patient or their client from being re-traumatized. And so I'll give you the perfect example. A lot of times, you know, I, I remember when I was pregnant with my son and going into the doctor, it was very important that I had the option to have a black provider, to have a, a, a black um, primary care doctor at that time, a black OBGYN, a black healthcare team. And that's because of the high mortality rates associated with um, black women, you know, giving birth here, especially, you know, in the United States. And so I wanted that space to, to feel safe. You know, I wanted that space for me to be able to express my concerns about that and for my providers to take that seriously and really, really, you know, understand. And so I lucked up because my doctor, Dr. Carrie Griffin, and I'm going to shout him out here, um, you know, with Kaiser Permanente, he was, he actually leads the efforts, <laughs> you know, he's on the board <laughs> that, that um, is focusing on, you know, decreasing the amount of Black women that um, suffer, you know, from that high birth mortality when, when they are, you know, delivering or in the hospital. And so he was trauma informed. And so when I, when I went to him and I have a history of miscarriage. And so when I went to him and I expressed that to him, you know, he was always very comforting. My doctor always came into the room and sat down, you know, he's never, ever, I've, I've never, went there and he stood up the whole time that I was there. Like he was in a rush. Nope. He would take a seat <laughs> and he would sit and he would cross his legs and, you know, Hey, how you doing? How's the family? You know, how's everything going? How's work? You know how, like he cared. And so he, he operated from a place of being trauma informed. He approached me as if, you know, I, as if he could trigger me at any time. And so he was always very careful with his words, always very caring, but it was sincere. And I knew that now on the opposite side, I've, you know, I've heard people say that they have had, you know, they've been pregnant, they've gone to the doctor and let's say they have a practitioner that isn't necessarily black. And so they may experience, you know, when it's time to give birth, they may experience, you know, asking for pain medication and not receiving it, you know, in a timely matter or never receiving it at all. Um, they, their wants and their needs may be overlooked. And, you know, there is a, there's a huge connection uh, with, you know, slavery and, and um, I cannot remember his name, but, you know, long, long ago, <laughs> Um, where when it when it all started, you know, there there's been a lot of experimentation 
that have, you know, occurred with Black women and their vaginal areas and no, no medication given, no, you know, no, no care for the fact that, you know, they're in pain, but it's a view of, okay, well, you're Black, you can take it. You know, you're strong, you can take it. Um, you know, I don't necessarily have to be concerned about you and pain. You can, you can handle it. And so that is, that's the issue. That's what this all comes down to. And it's, that's not, you know, of course, that's not trauma-informed care. That is not being sympathetic. That's not being empathetic. That's not care for that patient from the assumption of them, you know, having a history of trauma. There's something called the ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. And so the ACEs was a study that was conducted primarily by Kaiser Permanente. And it highlighted the impact of, you know, just certain environmental and social factors that a person, you know, experienced and the and how those things then impacted that person's health, you know, mentally, physically, and how it showed up for that person and the long-term impact of having those ACEs. And so it's about really approaching that person from the perspective of they may score, you know, on that, on the ACEs, um, measurement, you know, and that on the ACEs screening tool, they may actually score something on there. So it's about approaching that person from that perspective. So let's, let's dig deeper into kind of solutions, right? So I think trauma-informed approaches are, are definitely the, the start of the conversation. I want to talk about this, this thing I, I hear often about a trauma response, right? Like, the ways that people respond to other folks. I mean, there was, I was talking to a friend not too long ago and I told him about my need to just be busy. And he said, oh bro, that's a trauma response. And I'm like, no, not this time. It's just like, as a creative, I just, I like to be busy. And so mm -hmm. when you hear that, what does that mean to you? So for me, it's about, that person has experienced a level of trauma or traumatic event or multiple traumatic events. And because of those traumatic events, there are decisions and responses that occur because of that trauma. And so for example, a person may have difficulty trusting others, or they may, you know, get into, let's say a disagreement with a partner and immediately they run or they need to leave the house or they become angry and aggressive. And those could all be responses that are linked to, let's just say they witnessed domestic violence as a child, or they were exposed, you know, to some type of traumatic event that causes them to respond that way due to that, due to that traumatic event, not necessarily due to what's happening in the present, but that has become the, their coping mechanism or their trauma response um, <laughs> based off of what happened before. So when people say trauma response, that's what they're referring to, that you have experienced some form of trauma and you are responding actually based on that traumatic event or based on that trauma, not necessarily to what's happening right now in the present. And so 
As we talk about trauma-informed care and trauma responses, you mentioned earlier about Black maternal health. And so I'm really interested in hearing how trauma-informed approaches help to advance racial equity. So I would say that, so actually I would start with the racial equity part and realizing that someone should not be treated differently based on their race, but they should have access to the same tools and the same options as anyone else. So they shouldn't be denied things because of their race. And when you tie in the trauma-informed care with the racial equity, what that looks like is, I think, being conscious of the fact that there are some of us, especially when we talk about, you know, for focusing on the United States, there are some of us that have a higher likelihood of encountering, you know, certain adverse childhood experiences that others may not necessarily have encountered. And so it's about approaching everyone from a place of that empathy and sympathy, but also being very cognizant of the fact that there are some people, especially in the United States, and so we're talking about, you know, immigrants, Black and brown people, people that have had a um, higher likelihood of incidence of racial inequality. And so just being hypersensitive to the fact that they may have had a lot of negative experiences or negative occurrences, other things that may contribute to poor health outcomes, being hyper sensitive to those matters and then treating them or acting accordingly, especially as a provider. And so with that being like the, the, the first start of recognizing the, the racial differences in the ways that, well, not the racial differences, but the differences between people's uh, outcomes, how does the trauma-informed approach piece help to facilitate um, the elimination of some of these inequities, especially when we're talking about Black maternal health? So let's, so... And I, I referenced him earlier, and I remember his name now, James Marion Sims back in the 1800s. He actually created, you know, one of the tools that's, that's highly used, you know, I believe it's the speculum, that's highly used in when giving women vaginal exams. But to create that tool, he experimented on his slaves. And so the slaves were never given, you know, pain medication. The slaves were never asked if they were okay. The slaves were never, you know, treated. And a lot of them wound up being sterile because of his experimentation, right? And so now we bring it to the forefront and Black women now experience, you know, maternal mortality um, at, a, at a rate of two to three times higher than that of white women currently. This happens now. And so if we, if we want to be clear, and so that's, you know, when we, when we tie in um, historical moments or when we, we tie in, you know, the historical precedents, you know, 
that's the precedence that has been set, you know, that, that it's okay to mistreat someone based on, you know, their, their race. And so we're looking now at, you know, black maternal health. It's a, it's a big thing now. It's a big topic of discussion, but again, it's, it's has become embedded almost in, in society. It's a part of the foundation. It happened in the 1800s. We're now in, you know, the 2000s <laughs> and, and we're still, you know, experiencing that. And so there's so much fear that I think a black mother has when she is set to give birth, especially, you know, in a, in a hospital. Um, but being trauma-informed or having a trauma-informed team, you know, that team makes sure that that mother is high priority. You know, they check on her. They make sure that she has support. They make sure that, you know, the, the nurse is present for her. They make sure that she has, you know, I know when I was pregnant, I was given the option to do a birth plan. And in my birth plan, I wanted to have, make sure I had my doula there and make sure I had a team of people that were there for me. And I wound up having a full team actually in the delivery room of women, you know, black and brown women that helped to deliver my baby. And they did things the way I wanted to. And so I think that is what it boils down to is relying on that mother to express herself and then listening to her, you know, not just saying, well, no, regardless of what you want, we're going to do it this way. It's about making sure that, you know, you're listening to that patient, that you're listening to the family. There are so many stories out there of black women giving birth and let's say their, their spouse or their partner, you know, saying, Hey, something's wrong with her and the hospital or the staff not taking it seriously. And that black mother winds up dying you know, or having huge health complications that all could have been avoided if what she said or if what her family said or what her partner said was taken seriously and it was taken with a sense of urgency. And so I think it kind of, it starts there. It's just, you know, again, it goes back to taking that patient's life seriously because that's what it all boils down to, you know, and as healthcare practitioners, you, you take that oath, you get into this for a reason. And hopefully, I, I, I hope that the reason, you know, is, is to provide that quality of care, but on an equal level, you know, regardless of a person's race or gender, regardless, because it shouldn't matter. Um, but that's, I think, that's what I think it comes down to is treating that person like a person and, listening to them and making them a priority and treating their needs in an urgent manner. You know, as we're recording this, my wife is just entered into her second trimester and we've got twin boys already. And so we wanted to make sure this second time around, we took extra precautions, right? So having a high-risk pregnancy with twins, this is the first time that we have a doula. I'm really excited. I might even be more excited than she is, mm -hmm. but being able to draft a birth plan and making sure that her wishes are identified and someone is there to advocate for us, because even as, as first-time parents, you know, being in the hospital, you you initially, like, you, you trust them to do the right thing, right? Like, like 
Mm-hmm. We're going to honor our wishes, the things that we say. And then you just quickly see how false that is. And mm-hmm. in, in our experience, it was the, the formula being rushed while still at the hospital. And this was at a hospital mm-hmm. that claimed to be breast is best. And, you know, they would never do such a thing. But I mean, clearly our children needed to eat and they just didn't take the time to, to slow things down and, and help them with latching. And, mm-hmm. you know, that that's minor compared to some of the things that I've read in like my own research, mm-hmm. but just being sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. And now like we, we have a new doctor the second go, second time around. She is a black woman. She has great rapport with my wife. She understands why we want to have a doula. Like just having all of those things in place, I think is going to make for a completely different experience and one that we can look back on and just be like, you know, we did things as best as we could. I mean, that's the same as what we would say for the the boys, but we did things the best that we could. And we put steps in place to protect mom. Like we, Mm -hmm. we really wanted to center mom and her experience and her wishes and fingers crossed come April, everything will go the mm-hmm. way that it should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so important. I think that, you know, I, I hemorrhaged when I gave birth to my son and I remember my husband and my sister who were in the room with me, you know, they became very worried and my, my husband, especially, and I could see in his face, the fear, you know, and it was the fear of, oh my gosh, what's happening with my wife? But it was also the fear of, oh my gosh, we just had this baby and she, she has to come back. <laughs> and, you know, I, I will tell you, I was never worried. And I was never worried because, and they had to rush me to the operating room, but I was never worried because my team, and as I, I shared earlier, team of black, um, black and brown women, my team, when I tell you I sat in that room and they prodded and they, you know, she, they warned, you know, it's it's not, it's going to be a little uncomfortable, but I have to make sure all of these clots are out. And they, they did everything when I tell you that they could. And so I never worried. I never worried. Even when we had to go to the OR and the bleeding stopped and everything, and they got me back. But it made such a difference, James, because the women from the time that I went into labor and, and, and then, you know, 27 hours later, he was coming. <laughs> I, I, it was, it was just, it was a peaceful experience. I wanted the lights dim. I wanted my doula there. I wanted my sister in the room. I wanted my husband in the room. I wanted, you know, I wanted um, aromatherapy and, you know, all of those things. And I was able to do all of that. And so being able to do it, you know, my way, and they let me, you know, in essence, like push my baby out. They just literally just caught the baby, but they were patient. They weren't, you know, telling me to push and they weren't, they were very patient and they just let it happen. And it was wonderful. And that was how I wanted it. And so I was just, but I knew, you know, and it made such a difference. It made such a difference. And like you, I've read the stories and, 
you know, they're hurtful. They're hurtful because a lot of the women are treated like they're not even people, you know, let alone they're doing something that is to me, one of the closest acts to God. And that is giving birth to another person and, or, or, or some more people, you know, in your case. And so it's, it, it's disheartening to read and hear about the stories of these providers that, you know, don't take that seriously and don't understand the sensitive nature of it all. It's, it's, it can be disheartening. And so I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't talk about kind of coping, right? Like I, I realize this is not a, a therapeutic session. We don't use the podcast as a therapy platform, but at a high level, how does one cope with the triggers? I mean, the reminders of trauma and how does one move beyond that experience if there is such a thing as beyond it? So the beauty is there is a beyond. Um, I, I definitely, I, I am a therapist, so, you know, and I'm also a coach. And so I, you know, hands down, I am an advocate for getting that support. And so, you know, I always say it's kind of like, you know, you go to the gym. So you can go to the gym and you can do it on your own. And, you know, you may miss some days because you're by yourself and no one's there to really hold you accountable. But if you get a trainer, you know, you're more likely to show up. You're more likely to, you know, get in shape the way that you want to get in shape. You're more likely to, you know, lose that weight or tone the way that you want to tone because someone else is there supporting you through the process. And so that's how I look at therapists and coaches and, you know, as tools, I look at myself as a tool that someone uses for them to, to work on what it is that, you know, they need to work on that, that childhood trauma, that financial trauma. And so, there are some things though that a person can do on their own. So one of the things that I like to do is give my clients the tools for them to use when they're not with me because I can't be with them all the time, you know? So setting them up for success is super important. Um, I, you know, I do a lot of, you know, mindfulness techniques, a lot of uh, meditation, a lot of relaxation techniques, a lot of deep breathing. I do a lot of, you know, rewriting the narratives or narrative therapy. That's what it's called, where you literally rewrite the narrative to an event. And it, that's so key, um, especially when doing trauma work, because a lot of times, you know, that trauma happens and then we tell ourselves one story and, you know, it's really about, you know, working on that, rewriting that story so that you're not holding on to those limited beliefs, to those negative thoughts. Um, some other tools that have been useful. I'm also a certified clinical hypnotherapist. And so I utilize sort of, um, I use clinical hypnotherapy and then I'm trained in basic EMDR. And so that's also a tool that I use with my trauma patients as well. Um, other things that I give my clients is, you know, grounding techniques and just helping them to, you know, when they're feeling anxious or they're getting worried or they feel like, you know, something's coming up for them. So I give them techniques that they can use um, to keep themselves in the present and not, you know, revert back to when that happened. Um, there are, you know, we do shadow work. And so that is, you know, addressing or, or talking to or, or helping to heal the inner child. Um, and so if it's childhood trauma, you know, healing that child 
um, that, you know, was there when that trauma was present, because a lot of times no one is there to protect that child. And so as an adult, you know, you go back and you protect that child and you apologize to that child and you talk to that child and you comfort, you know, that inner child uh, part of you. So there's a lot of different modalities um, that can be used and that are effective when you are working on healing trauma and on working to overcome. So the goal is to just get that person to a place at least of being able to cope. Um, it doesn't necessarily ever go away. However, if you have the tools, you are better armed. And so when things come up, um, when those you know negative thoughts or those memories or those trauma responses come up, you're better equipped to handle them, whether you are you know with a provider at the time or not. It's all about the tools. Yes, <laughs> yes. So Dr. Kara Young, I, I definitely appreciate you hopping on the pod. And this, this is your time, right? That you get to share kind of the things that you're working on, how people can keep up with you, um, any upcoming events or other milestones that you want to share with our listeners? Sure. So I have a book out and the name of my book is What the F is your problem becoming an active worker in healing your trauma and the book highlights different stories from black women and the traumatic experiences that they have endured throughout their lives and so it includes grief it includes some um, birth trauma it includes grief and loss it includes you know infidelity i have it, it ranges and just some of the things that those women did during the time to um, begin to cope and to heal themselves. And so definitely, again, you want to pick up what the F is your problem, uh, becoming an active worker and healing your trauma if you do not have it yet. Um, I would also say that I uh, my podcast is out as well. And um, it is what the F is your problem. <laughs> so um, with the Big Breast crew, that is, that's my crew. And Let's see. I am on the speaking circuit. I can be found on Instagram at Dr. Fanike. That's D-R-F-A-N-I-K-E. Uh, I can be found on Facebook at Dr. Fanike, on Clubhouse at Dr. Fanike. And if you are someone that resonates with, you know, everything that you've heard me discussing, you're in a place and you feel like, you know, you want to start working on some of those barriers, you are tired of repeating those cycles, you're tired of, you know, just not living the life that you want, and you're tired of, you know, those mental obstacles, those things from your past that are stopping you, you're tired of, you know, just not having those relationships that you're longing for, definitely feel free to go to drfanike.com. That's D-R-F-A-N-I-K-E and schedule a consultation. I would love to hop on with you and see if we're a good fit and see if I'm able to help you to move forward and to start living the life that you want. Dr. Kiara Young, first of all, I love the book title. Just start out there. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> and definitely I'll, I will link it in the uh, episode notes just so people can have another way to get to it. Okay, sounds good. I'm definitely glad that you were able to join us today. When I put this episode together, and I feel like this is the common trend now, um, you know, we we started the conversation around trauma. We spent a lot of time talking about maternal health inequities, and I think just by nature, 
being able to unpack the relationship between trauma and maternal health. I think part of it is just the timeliness of where I am with my life right now, but also seeing that, you know, this is something for all of those who encounter the health system or behavioral health system for that matter, to be mindful of what people have experienced and encountered because it's gonna shape the way that they show up in their various uh, roles, um, positions. And so thank you for amplifying that and, and centering it in this conversation today. And mm -hmm. I hope that our listeners really take away the fact that, you know, things happen to people that stick with them, that transform them, but it doesn't have to end there. So. Definitely want to yeah. just send thanks to you, Dr. Kara Young, for the work you're doing and hoping that, you know, we continue to collaborate in this space. Definitely. Thank you so much, James. I so appreciate you. Hey, I just want to give a huge shout out to Dr. Kiara Young for joining us on the podcast. When we look at the relationship that we've nurtured with the Cummings Graduate Institute, just a friendly reminder and shameless pug, we have two courses live. Um, one around understanding and mitigating implicit bias and the other on authentic community relationships. But we also are getting ready to premiere, drum roll please, this Friday, Unmasking White Supremacy and Racism in Mental Health. Uh, there should be a teaser video coming soon. I'll be sure to post that on our socials. That's at Equity Matters Podcast on Instagram, at Equity Matters PC on Twitter, and Equity Matters Podcast on YouTube and Facebook. When we think about that relationship, it's been so mutually beneficial because we are constantly learning from each other in the environment of what it means to provide uh, equitable, culturally responsive behavioral health care. And the work that CGI is doing, I'm just amazed every time I see something new coming out. Um, kudos and shout outs to all of their recent graduates. Um, it's a program that if you're interested in learning more about the behavioral health space, I definitely direct you towards CGI. Um, their links will be available to you through today's episode, so be sure to check them out. I hope that you all had an opportunity to listen to my birthday project, uh, I Got Five, where it apparently has been claimed as the uh, first sketch comedy show of social work. And I, I appreciate said terms because it actually came out of me watching all that and just wondering what a few skits would look like. I, I go back to like sixth or seventh grade. One of my favorite teachers, uh, Miss Willie Bell Gibson at Bates Academy, uh, she had us doing skits all the time. And so improv is something that's embedded in some ways in my DNA, but something I haven't been able to tap to tap into in quite some time. That was that was a lot of fun. I got a few ideas for if I did a volume two. So stay tuned on that. Also excited because this upcoming Monday, the Brothers and Social Work Collective will have our first in-person event. So we'll be hanging out at Wayne State University as part of their Black and Latinx Males and Social Work conversation. Really excited to dig into that because there's just this misconception that uh, people of color are unicorns in the social work field. Um, not true. I know far too many of them. And it's just exciting because these are new brothers that are coming into the work who need the supports, who need the resources. So I'm glad to be stepping into a role where I can support them and, and be an advocate and a mentor and, and someone who has been in their space 
who knows what it's like to go into classrooms and not be sure if you're going to see anybody that looks like you. But now you have someone rooting in your corner constantly. So really excited for, for that opportunity. I think that's all for now. We've been busy. Um, I'm looking forward to slowing things down a little bit. We've got two new episodes coming next month. Be on the lookout for those announcements. And we are still planning to wrap things up in December. I'm holding to it as best as I can. I might go into a a semi-retirement. We'll see what that looks like. Um, I'll be like Jordan when he came back, win a couple more rings and, you know, sell off into the sunset. We'll see what happens. But anyway, folks, always a pleasure to wrap with you all. Be sure to share this episode with a friend, someone that you think needs to learn more about the subject of trauma and trauma responses. Take care, stay safe, and of course, equity matters.